Dear listeners, Sairam and greetings from Prashanti Nilayam. Welcome to our radio program, Afternoon Satsang. This is a segment of Radio Sai's Thursday Live, hosted by Prem and Arvind at 12.30pm Indian Standard Time on Thursdays, only on Asia's stream of Radio Sai Global Harmony. The discussion is on the Ramakatha Rasavahini, a book written by Swami, and today's episode was first broadcast live on 23rd July 2015 have a listen please pranam je bhagwan's lotus feet dear listeners we welcome you to this week's afternoon satsang continuing from last week we shall proceed in the ramakatha rasavahini satsang and but before that as always we begin by taking the beautiful sweet name of lord shri rama shri rama rama rame ki rame rame manorame सहस्रनाम तत्मनामरालनेमनामरालने Sairam dear listeners we begin by offering our humble pranams at the lotus feet of our beloved Sairama and also by offering our prostrations to Lord Hanuman the greatest devotee a devotee who exalted himself to the level of god through his devotion an ideal for all of us it is said that wherever whenever the story of lord rama is sung lord hanuman presents himself there and we are sure that today too he is there with us here listening to the story of his lord and so we offer our prostrations to him also many times prem you know even during this serial on the ramkatha rasavahini we have stopped to remind ourselves of the glory and beauty of the ramayana we have also discussed how relevant it is for the modern day and age how it is timeless and how its lessons and insights hold good even today i feel that how many ever time we repeat that it is not enough because this is what swami used to do so often whether it's a summer course or whether it is a ramnavami discourse swami would always spend some time on explaining why ramayana is very relevant why it is a magnificent text and why all of us must invest time it's not spending time it's investing time because like any other investment the time that we spend in contemplation of this sweet story is definitely going to pay us very richly it's going to enrich our lives itself so therefore i feel it is not out of place that every now and then we pause and ponder and go back to what swami has said on the importance of ramayana in the present day context very true when you, many times when you look at the epics at least when you look at sanatan dharma there are two major epics the ramayana and the mahabharata 
Mahabharata. The Ramayana often tells us a path which can be followed, you know, in a sense where God comes down in a in a form and in a role which can be emulated. Mm-hmm. In fact, that is the role of Ramayana. But even in the Ramayana, there's always a few of those cryptic episodes where we don't really completely understand why it was that way. If it was supposed to be perfect, why there is a sense of imperfection in the story itself. But when you come to Mahabharata, like, you know, it is a complete shift from all the ideals which we saw even in the Avatar in the Ramayana. You know, completely where Ekapati Vratam of Rama is completely different in the avatar where even the the way the avatar carries himself is so different. Here there is, uh, they would say, the Mariada Purushottam, you know, that, that there is a sense of dignity in this. There, there's a sense of down-to-earthness, you know, where he is really amongst the children doing mischief. Even amongst the statesmen, he's the more mischievous one, hmm. where he's always hmm. trying to, you know, counter-plot against the cunning. You can always sense a pattern in that, where in the Ramayana, where you are given a temptation to follow the Lord, but in the Mahabharata, you are again reminded that you cannot still define the Lord. You know, where you are drawn to the belief, and then you are belief is expanded. It's almost like that. Where you're supposed to want to follow the Lord, at the same time you have to keep this in your mind that He is beyond your reasoning, He is beyond your understanding. It is often said, follow the actions of Rama, follow the words of Krishna. Very true. Because one will just not be able to comprehend, fathom or understand what Krishna did. It all seems very confusing if one is not at a level of spiritual evolution that is required to interpret the Lord's actions, to understand the Lord's actions. And that is why I don't think it is surprising that all over India, especially in North India, if you see, there is a plethora of temples for Rama, Lord Rama. Every village seems to have a temple for Lord Rama and why North India, even in South India when we go for Gram Seva, we see that most of the villages have a temple dedicated for Lord Sri Rama and for Hanuman. Though Krishna is idolized, Krishna is the favorite, Krishna charms, yet people find it easier, the simple village folk find it easier to follow Rama because what Rama spoke, what Rama did were in perfect resonance and consonance with each other. It is not as if to say that what Krishna spoke and Krishna did were not in consonance. It was at a higher level of frequency, if I can put it that way, which will not be grasped by normal people unless there is an in-depth understanding and great faith and love, one will not be able to understand the actions of Krishna. And therefore, many times Swami too emphasized on the importance of Ramayana. Because for a beginner on the spiritual path, the Ramayana offers a straightforward answer to all of life's questions. If one just looks at the Ramayana story, looks at the epic Ramayana and does whatever Lord Rama did, followed the logic that Lord Rama followed, life becomes so much more easier. That is why Rama has been considered as the perfect man. You know, his whole avatarhood, never once is he referred to as God. If we read the Valmiki Ramayana, we'll never see a reference to him as God. There's just the reference to him as Purushottama, the most ideal and perfect man. And I feel it, it wouldn't be out of place to begin this week's exposition on the Ramkatha Rasavahini with a few words from Swami himself, where he states how important it is that we listen and follow the ideals presented to us in the Ramayana. So we'll just start with a small clip from the year 1999. This was during the Ramnavami of 1999, 25th of March, 1999. So, if anybody who will criticize this Ramayana? 
ప్రతి ఒక్కరు కూడా ఎన్ని పర్యావరణం విన్నా కూడా ఇంకా వినాలి 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 అని ఆశ వస్తుంది పవిత్రమైనటువంటి రామచరితాన్ని ఆనాటి కాలం నుంచి ఈనాటి వరకు భారతీయులు స్మరిస్తూనే వస్తున్నారు ఇలాంటి పవిత్రమైనటువంటి కథ యొక్క తత్వము భారతీయులు ప్రత్యేకించి చెప్పనక్కర్లేదు కానీ అందులో ఉన్నటువంటి యొక్క అమూల్యమైన యొక్క విషయాలు మాత్రం గుర్తించడానికి ప్రయత్నించాలి హైలీ వాల్యుబుల్ ఇంప్లికేషన్ వాక్య పరిపాలన చేయాలి వన్ షుడ్ ఫాలో ఫార్ ఎలాంటి వారైనా సరే గొప్ప అధికారైనా సరే వన్ కానీ నీకంటే ముందు పుట్టినవాడే కాదు తండ్రి నీ తర్వాత పుట్టినవాడు కాదు కదా ఫాదర్ ఈజ్ యువర్ సీనియర్ బోర్న్ ఎర్లియర్ తల్లిదండ్రులను గౌరవించాలి సోదరులు ఐకమత్యం ఉంటుండాలి ఇంకా స్త్రీల విషయంలో చాలా జాగ్రత్తగా ఉంటుండాలి ఇన్ రెస్పెక్ట్ విమెన్ యూ షుడ్ బి కేర్ఫుల్ కుల సంపత్తిని మనం అభివృద్ధి పరుచుకోవాలి షుడ్ డెవలప్ యువర్ క్యారెక్టర్ అది ఏ నిజమైనటువంటి మూడు ప్రమాణములు మూడు ప్రమాణం ఎక్కడ ఉందో అక్కడంతా రామాయణం ఉట్టి పడుతుంది ఇంకా రామాయణం దాని మేలు చదవనక్కర్లేదు జీవితం యొక్క రామాయణము దిస్ ఈస్ రామాయణ ఆఫ్ లైఫ్ so that was the clip interestingly two things of course which swami says one part of it we're going to come to in t- today's discussion where swami says how one has to be very careful when it comes to matters related to women but before that obedience to parents you know many times this debate is there where uh, we often ask can anybody be so blindly obedient to their parents given this age when not all elders are perfect but swami is almost emphatically emphasizing that who your father may be or who your elder or your parent may be it is mandatory that you should obey them this actually it's a very interesting debate maybe it should be a completely different occasion altogether where we talk about it but it brings a lot of idealism in the society when you have children who show a certain amount of reverence to their parents because we were thinking about from the child's point of view and uh, we are trying to pick out those one or two extreme cases where the parents are not probably ideal enough to guide their children and ask them is it okay for children to blindly obey their parents but when you have this kind of a reverence in society as a mandate what happens is automatically parents have the sense of responsibility coming to them and that's why in the ancient days when they used to suggest that a person should get married after a certain age it is because once you have a child once you have children who look up to you you automatically get into a frame of mind where you have to lead yourself in a little idle manner because that's why even in the olden days they used to say that you know youngsters wayward they will get married he'll come to a straight path <laughs> because the moment you have somebody looking up to you for example it's at home you know in 24 hours a day there's somebody who's looking up to you and is going to ape whatever you're going to do i think automatically a sense of responsibility comes that is beautifully put prem i remember the conversation i was having with one of my classmates the other day he is now a father of a child just 4 years of age maybe or 3 years and he was saying that bringing up his child has been such a fulfilling experience in ways more than one and one of those ways have been that it has brought in him a new respect a new regard and a new awe for his own parents because he says i have always been in the shoes of a child i have always been a son i have always been a child so therefore everything all my perspectives all my views were aligned to that role of a child right today when i am a father i can understand the fears i can understand the pains you know when the child picks up the phone and says i want to play this game i am happy doing this let me do this for 4 hours why are you depriving me that joy and giving me only for 20 minutes a day says now I I can look back and understand what were the things deprived to me and how I felt that my parents were being senseless or they were not actually having my best interest in mind. I used to feel like that and he says, I realize my mistake today. So, though it, as you said, it might seem, give it as a mandate that obey parents 
irrespective of what they say maybe the uh, consoling thing can be that see all said and done whatever they may say they are not doing it to spite us or to put us down their intention intention is always love and they want us to become better or grow better than them that is always there in them and so therefore the way that intention expresses might not be pleasing for us but i feel we should always keep focusing on that intention see no mother or father of course there might be some exceptions i don't know but generally generally speaking no mother or father will ever want anything bad for the child for his or her child will always want good only the way it expresses might be wrong so i feel as logical children i mean in the sense once we cross the age of 18 we have that thing that we are recognized as adult so come on dad come on mom don't treat me like a child treat me on par with you i am an adult so that feeling is there that feeling of wanting to break out be independent and become a decision maker but we also should realize that time will come when you know when we have a next generation and when we realize what our parents are and from what this classmate of mine told me it became very evident that you don't get a second chance you can't today realize the difficulties of being a father and then go back and reverse the things that you did as a child so the faster we realize we take it on faith and start revering our parents because you know a life completes the circle today we are the child and uh, whether we respect or disrespect elders seem to be in our hands but a time will soon come when we'll be elder and it's very soon it means if you and me are 30 today in a matter of another 10 15 more years i think we'll be like elders and we'll be hoping that children listen to us so i think it's only logical on our part that we to give them the same respect very true in fact it's a very very beautifully mechanized system in society because uh, you know why it is suggested that most people should marry and for those who don't wish to marry actually the rules are very very strict if you see i mean uh, in indian culture the only other way you can remain single is if you take sanyas and mm. the rules for a sanyasi is very very stringent because the best uh, analogy i can think of is suppose you're going to join a school suppose you're going to be put in an educational establishment you don't have to do anything the moment you get into the portals of that educational institution you get disciplined right because mm. there is a schedule there is a system there is a set pattern but if you want to home school then you'll have to self discipline yourself you'll have to put lot more rules and you have to stick to those rules i think that's the main difference between you know becoming individually let's say a sanyasi or you get into a, a marital life where automatically there are some set patterns where you have to just get in and now you start playing the role you start playing the role of a husband or a wife you start playing the role of a father or a uh, you know mother automatically there is a streamlining in society and and that's precisely why the epic like ramayana is so very beautiful because it emphasizes on some things without much explanation why did rama listen to dashrata without raising any questions because that's a pattern we may or may not follow it in society today but that is set as an ideal even if you are 80% of that ideal i think you can really lead a very good life in society same thing with the relation between rama and lord rama and sita you know the relation which was there where mother sita was unquestioningly accepting whatever rama was saying or at the same time like last week we saw where she was even questioning where she had a doubt she raised the point and the, how it should be raised and how it should be addressed i think that's why it's so beautiful and as swami said how many ages come ramayana has to be listened to and the lessons we have to try to imbibe them on the one hand when you listen to such examples of idealism the thought that may arise is hey, come on i can't do this this is too much i can't be like rama i can't be like lakshmana but as you said if not 80% even if i am 10% of it and if i can go to 
percent. If it can inspire me from 12 to go to 15 percent, I think we would have benefited immensely in our life. And that is why we have to keep coming back to this grand epic, to this great epic. Keep reading it, rereading it. This is something that we have stressed before also. Every time we reread, new ideas, new insights strike us and inspire us. So with that introduction, dear listeners, we are now at that point in the story where Shurpanaka has really had a loss of face, literally <laughs> and figuratively. She has been disfigured. Her nose and ears have been chopped off and she has tried to get her two brothers from the forest. Karandushana, I think uh, that episode is over. They come with 40,000 strong army and they all get vanquished single-handedly by Lord Rama. And uh, After that, the sages come and warn Rama that this is not the end. This is just the beginning because Shurpanaka, what we know of her, last time we had quite a discussion on Shurpanaka. So now Shurpanaka rushes back to her senior-most brother, which is Ravana himself. She goes to Lanka and she is wailing. As Swami writes in the book, as she enters the streets of Lanka, people are shocked because it's a horrendous wail and she's hell-bent on drawing all the attention to herself. In fact, she thunders into the royal court of Ravana, shouting out abuses at Ravana, saying, what kind of a man you are? What courage do you speak about? You're sitting in your own place here and boasting. You have no idea what's happening. And the way she's screaming, it's partially pain, partially embarrassment, and it's a mixture of emotions that is going on within her. And as she's screaming, Ravana looks at this and... Though he is angered by the sudden outburst and sudden disruption of the proceedings, it's his own sister and therefore, as they say, blood is thicker than water. So, he is shocked and he asks Shurpanaka, what has happened? You tell me what has happened. She talks to her brother and says, Ravana, you are sitting here on the throne and you are thinking that you are ruling, you are the monarch, that you have got the whole universe under you. You have no idea what's happening in the Dandakaranya forest, which is just next to your courtyard, you know. Dandakaranya is the place where you are given for all of us ogres and ogresses, rakshasas and rakshasas to roam about freely, claiming whatever comes there as our own. But you know what? Two princes have entered that forest now and they are killing, killing all our brothers and sisters by the thousands. They are merciless. They seem hell-bent upon wiping out our entire race. They show no mercy. They have just brutally murdered. Right now, they have murdered about 14,000 of the brethren. Kara and Dushana. So, you know, Ravana's ears perk up now because Kara and Dushana are gallant and valiant Rakshasas in his opinion. And she says, they have been slaughtered. You will not find anything of them remaining because all are dead. This is what is happening and you are blissfully sitting here on the throne. You know, as I read this description, I realized how, in a slightly tangential manner, how media can actually twist things, you know. How presentation can change everything. Just now we have been uh, living the beautiful story of Rama and so far over so many satsangs we have described it as the glorious act of the vanquishing of demons for the uplift of the good. And here when you listen to Shurpanaka speaking, she paints Rama and Lakshmana as the kind of you know blackest characters who are like some terrorists who are wiping out their race. And listening to this, Ravana gets incited. And uh, Ravana gets up and he starts telling that what do these people think of themselves and do they know whose brother is Karayandushina or whose brother you are and he's saying I have vanquished this person I have controlled this I have uh, defeated so and so in battle and all that and he starts praising himself and his achievements and that's when Shurpanaga says what a vain fool 
you are they are coming into your land they've killed your brothers they've killed your men and you are going around still talking about your own glory sitting in the palace and sitting in the palace you're not doing anything and at this point a very pertinent question is put forth to shurpanaka by another brother that is kumbhakarna and uh, this again is a very surprising detail here because most often in many of the ramayanas especially the televised ones which we see in the end when kumbhakarna is woken up it is shown as though that is when he comes to know of this whole plot ha ah, he was blissfully like, ignorant he was blissfully ignorant and he was woken up and then he says oh what has happened oh you brought away sita oh you're a fool he tries to advise and then he goes to war but actually he is as swami reveals it here he was in fact part of that gathering where shurpanaka comes and complains so it's kumbhakarna who asks shurpanaka that you know the nose and the ears are part of your face hmm. and if somebody would come and chop off those it cannot happen without that person coming so close to you and how is it that you let it happen what were you doing till these were chopped off no i mean even if a person comes close to you the ears and nose are not in alignment you need three separate strokes right. to cut both the ears and the nose so kumbhakarna is naturally perplexed as to what were you doing standing and offering your nose were you sleeping in fact that is what he asks oh shurpanaka were you sleeping because how is it that because one, one ear is on this side the other is on the opposite side the nose is on the other side you know three different directions three different sweeps are needed so what were you doing and that is when you know shurpanaka she actually makes a confession she says what shall i say when i saw those two they are so handsome and she starts describing their glory their beauty it's very evident that she's so smitten by their beauty you know this is again another subtle point that swami brings out I mean I don't think it is there even in the Valmiki Ramayana how is it that Shurpanaka's ears and nose got cut what was she doing even if she had started fleeing maybe she would have lost only one ear or maybe the nose but she was so lost in the beauty that she didn't even realize you know that speaks about the glory and grandeur of god when you are seeing god actually worldly pains don't seem to matter at all and that is why i think in times of trouble we are told look up to god and that is also the reason why i think kunti in fact invited trouble because whether you invite trouble or happiness it doesn't matter when you're looking at god you're so lost you're so enamored you're so absorbed that you don't feel pain at all so in fact you're going through your karma without suffering the karma because that is what the darshan of the lord does the name of the lord does and that is highlighted by this episode where shurpanaka says that i didn't realize my ears and nose getting chopped because i was so lost admiring the handsome princess and that's the beauty in which she goes on to describe as you said the beauty of these two princes and he says that one touch of his actually made me lose my body consciousness body consciousness and then uh, she says that in fact you won't believe that even karan and dushana were not in a position to fight with them because the moment they saw them they were so enamored by their beauty and they said should we fight with such princes who were you know glowing and there's something ethereal about them and uh, then there is a short part where swami says that shurpanaka starts reviling their own clan she says you know what a pity that we are born like this we are always plotting against people we are cunning we are trying to uh, you know hurt people and we are born in such ugly forms the moment i saw those two i felt you know what a terrible uh, birth i've got and i think it's a very very beautiful point because i think what swami is trying to drive here is when you are face to face with purity however much evil you are i think that bit of inspiration will come and i think it is up to each one of us to capture that moment and hold on to it exactly even you know last week when we were describing while you were struck with how the power of purity is what struck me was that the equality of lord's love is such last week we were describing as to how when all these 14000 ogres attacked the sammon astra made them see rama everywhere you know we think that the ability to see swami everywhere the ability to see everything as god is a boon that is bestowed on the highest of devotees but that boon was bestowed even on these rakshasas on these ogres and 
you know, we feel again that it's at the end of years of penance and tapas that we get the touch of the Lord that makes us forget. I mean, that makes us evolve beyond our ego, beyond body consciousness. But that same boon was conferred even on Shurpanaka. She lost all body consciousness with the touch of the Lord. So what inspired me so much was definitely God's love is so equal. Like the rain that showers everywhere. It doesn't discriminate on whether something is cement or something is a tree, something is a grass. It showers equally on all. And Swami says God's love is like that it showers on all equally. It is just left to each individual whether they upturn the vessel of their heart or keep it facing the other way. If it is facing the rain, then the heart fills with that love. If it is turned upside down, how much ever it may rain, the vessel will not fill up. So, again, in a very subtle manner, Swami shows how equal the Lord's love is and how even a person like Shurpanaka gets touched by that goodness. You know, she is undergoing that transformative experience. Very true. And in fact, Swami goes on to say that hearing this description, Ravana feels great joy and peace within. (laughs) Yes. You know, the very thought of somebody, the way Shurpanaka herself is describing these two people, the thought of some beings like this actually gives Ravana a lot of peace and uh, joy and Swami goes on to say that there is actually a conflict within him. There is that innermost devotee. We all know the story of Ravana, the story of Jaya Vijaya. They are actually the servitors of Lord Vishnu. Hmm. Swami says that devotion within is actually coming out but that vasana which has made him live a life of a Rakshasa, that birth which he has taken, the atrocities which he has done in that body, that is not permitting him to accept this person as his overlord, as his lord whom he has to surrender to. So Swami says there is a conflict, there is this sudden burst of joy from within learning about these two prints and there is this anger which says that you know they have come into my territory, I will teach them a lesson, the ego being smitten and I think it's so beautiful that this particular description where Swami is describing how Shurpanaka goes through and to contrast this, Swami also says what happens in the mind of Vibhishana. Exactly. You know, same, he also feels the same and I think this is a very very beautiful uh, uh, revelation to all of us because many times even when we did the Satyam Shurpanaka Sundaram uh, series, we saw how so many people saw so many miracles where they came they, they could really feel Swami's love but at some point they just wither away they just fall off the way or they just not having the perseverance to hold on I think it's clearly that is what it is because the same experience is felt by Shurpanaka the same experience was felt by Kara and Dushana the same experience was felt by Ravana and by Vibhishana we will come to the story of Maricha he also feels the same you know that deep purity which he feels inside Maricha was one of the demons who attacked Vishwamitra's ashram right, right? he's the son of Tataki, Tataki. right? Uh, I think so, Maricha yes. Maricha and Subahu. Uh-huh. Subahu gets killed and Maricha gets chased away. But you can see that all of them are actually somewhere deeply moved by the, you know, even the thoughts of Rama. Ravana and Vibhishana have not yet seen him. But the moment Vibhishana hears, he also feels the same great joy. But already he has surrendered to this Lord. He's saying that this is, this is probably, you know, the goal of my life. These are the people I'm waiting to see. Will they accept me? I have been a Rakshasa. Will I be accepted? Will I get the chance to serve them. And this situation that has uh, developed here is typical to what happens in each one of our lives. You know, we also have the Rakshasa in us. We also have the God in us. And always this conflict goes on. Now, it finally boils down to what we allow to dominate. Now, Shurpanaka has had that experience where she has transcended body consciousness. She has had that experience where she has felt deep bliss and peace. At the same time, she has had experiences where she has let her greed, her lust get the better of her. She has got smitten. She has let anger come out. What she gives priority to defines who she is. And she is a Rakshasi, a demoness, because going back, she gives priority to those animalistic tendencies. When she sees that Ravana seems to be getting some kind of 
satvik nature listening to the description he wants to arouse him back she calls him a wild fool she in fact calls him a mass of wickedness you know usually somebody calls you a hey, you mass of wickedness it's like a it's like a derogatory term but here it's used like a praising address it shows <laughs> how megalomaniac you can be you're proud to be a mass of wickedness but i think if you look at it that's what we have come to in these days right <laughs> things like uh, wickedness and bad i, I remember uh, there was an ad in the newspaper once uh-huh. which uh, when we were students professor venkatraman came and spoke about it in the class it was a half a page ad which said greed is good <laughs> <laughs> you know where your the bad boys is supposed to be a good tag name for a for a band or something like that exactly and and you know if you are called in a class if among your peers you are known as a sadhu a good boy i remember in the hostel also we used to give this term called sat pandu pandu <laughs> means fruit and sat meaning satvik it's like a satvik fruit that used to be like a i mean i don't think it used to be used only in the positive sense it used to be used in the sense of uh, is a very uncool and boring kind of person right and all these rajasik and other tendencies we find it cool we like hot we like cool these are the kind of things that uh, kaliyuga sadly seems to be encouraging as greatness and the seeds of that we can see in the rakshasas of yore because there she calls him oh mass of wickedness <laughs> <laughs> you know i tried laughing thinking how is it sami but maybe it's true because you know i was seeing an english movie the other day and somebody asked how was the party she says the party was wicked and you know that's supposed <laughs> right, to mean exactly. that it was awesome you know they'll not say the party was very good that's very uh, it's a, a lame way of saying it and the other day i was seeing an advertisement on tv it's for a deodorant hmm. it said where the sin of chocolate <laughs> it's supposed to be chocolate <laughs> but do you know okay. this is where the sin of chocolate imagine that you I mean, it's it's supposed to be a beautiful thing to wear something as sinful as a fragrance yeah. of chocolate <laughs> yes you know yield to your temptations right all the things that we have been told not to do those who do it are apparently cool you know when i look at all this i just feel the same what i feel when somebody says taking drugs is cool or drinking alcohol is cool or smoking is cool yeah it appears to be cool but you are a fool <laughs> as someone said a cigarette is a roll of paper with fire at one end and a fool <laughs> at the other, the other. <laughs> right that's exactly what it is and that is what it is and therefore i think ravana felt very happy when addressed as a mass of wickedness and he's addressed as a mass of wickedness and and look at this huh? look at the words that shurpanaki uses two things to look out one is the wisdom that is there in those words and right. second thing is how perverted mind can distort that wisdom to suit that situation it shows both one the wisdom and how a perverted mind misuses wisdom i think both of this applies to us because many times we have the wisdom but we use it in a perverted sense to justify the wrongs that we are doing shurpanaka says she tells to ravana perhaps you do not know that sanyasis are ruined by the company they keep emperors get ruined by the ministers they employ wisdom is ruined by the desire for appreciation and the sense of shame is destroyed by imbibing drink meaning alcoholic drink so brother do not neglect fire do not neglect illness an enemy or a snake and a sin on the ground that seems small and insignificant because when they grow big they are bound to inflict great harm the wisdom is fantastic but in what context is she saying this she is saying all this to tell ravana that go attack and kill those two brothers so this is what she tells ravana and ravana breaks out of his reverie and that is why he decides that he has to take action and he asks shurpanaka tell me shurpanaka where are they how many bodyguards do they have who are the people taking care of them who are who are guarding them how many people are there that is the next question he asks and in response 
Shurpanaka comes with a description that arouses the lustful passion of Ravana because she describes the only other person who exists along with Lakshmana and Rama that is Mother Sita. And this is again a tip which Swami is giving us because Shurpanaka is clearly playing with the mind of Ravana. Hmm. You know, first of all, she is she's trying to uh, puncture his ego, saying that you know here are these fellows who have come into your region, they've uh, killed your brothers, they've hurt your sister, and you're not doing anything. So there, she is actually playing with his ego and trying to incite anger. And she realizes that this is not enough incentive for him to go in, you know, take on. So then she brings the next weapon in the armory because she starts describing Mother Sita, and she says not only are those to the pinnacle of masculine beauty but with them was this lady I have not seen anybody as beautiful as that there is nobody on earth I have come across human or damsel who is as beautiful as that and then she says that she is so beautiful that she would be a perfect match only for you only you are worthy of having a wife as beautiful as that you know Shurpanaka knew the weakness of her brother Swami many times in his discourses say that Ravana was far more red and well versed than Rama In fact, Swami says that while Rama, he had expertise in 32 forms of knowledge, Ravana had expertise in in 64 forms of knowledge, that is double of Rama. And you know, Ravana had conquered all his weaknesses, but one. And Swami says that uh, Ravana had only one weakness and that weakness, you see here, as we only described and saw, that anger did not work. Anger was not exactly Ravana's weakness. Though he got momentarily angry, he overcame that and as Swami writes, he was so peaceful. But then she directly targets his weakness, which is lust, desire, the karma, what they call. And the entire story of the downfall of Ravana begins with this desire for Mother Sita. And I think that is what Swami is emphasizing, saying that, you know, one weakness that Ravana had was enough to bring about his downfall. One among the six vices, the Arshad Vargas of Kamakrodha, Loba, Moha, Madhamatsarya. Then just imagine if each one of us have a mix of all the six, what downfall we are headed towards. I think it's best to listen in Swami's own words as to how even one among the six vices can bring about downfall and how we should be ever vigilant against them. We should kill the ego. We should kill anger. And we should subdue this greed. And therefore, this greed and the desire anger are the worst of enemies. And therefore, this is against God. And he went on hating God. What happened? He lost everything. So by this desire can achieve Government, but through legislation, has put a ceiling on the land, property, and housing, but not ceiling on desire. Ceiling on desire. Ceiling on desire is most important. That's what we have to observe. Then you will be all happy. And Kirnikas ordered that if some Prahlada should not chant God's name. Yet utter hatred towards his son. Why? 
స్వరించకూడదు బికాస్ హి డజంట్ లైక్ గాడ్ అండ్ హి డోంట్ వాంట్ హిస్ సన్ హి హరి ప్రేషేనటువంటి వాడు హిరణ్యకశపుడు అండ్ హిరణ్యకశపుడు హరి ప్రీతి కలిగినటువంటి వాడు ప్రహ్లాదుడు అండ్ ప్రహ్లాద లవ్స్ గాడ్ ప్రీతిని ఏ విధంగా ద్వేషం చేయడానికి వీలవుతుంది హౌ ఇస్ ఇట్ పాసిబుల్ టు హేట్ హిమ్ కనుకనే కట్టకడపటికీ హిరణ్యకశపుడు కుడును సర్వనాశనముగా వించుకున్నాడు అండ్ హిరణ్యకశపుడు రూయింగ్ హిమ్ సెల్ఫ్ ఆల్సో ఇంకా దుర్యోధనుడు దుర్యోధన లోభి 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 మైజర్ గ్రీన్ నంబర్ 1 ఇంకా పిల్లికైన పిచ్చం పెట్టేదివడు ఈ నెవర్ ఫెడ్ ఇవన్ ఏ క్యాట్ ఒక సూది మనం అప్పుడైనా కొన్ని వీలు కారంత కూడా నేను ఇవ్వను హి వాస్ నాట్ ప్రిపేర్డ్ ఈవెన్ టు షేర్ ద ల్యాండ్ దట్ కుడ్ బి ఆక్యుపైడ్ బై పాండవులు అన్ని హింసలు పెట్టాడు అండ్ హి మేడ్ ఎవరీబడి ధర్మమూర్తిని పాండవులను పరాభవం గావించాడు ఇన్ ఫ్యాక్ట్ హి హస్ హ్యుమిలియేటెడ్ పాండవులని ఒక బాధనా పెట్టాడు హి మేడ్ దెమ్ సఫర్ కట్టకడపడికి ఏమైపోయారు వాట్ హ్యాపెండ్ అట్ ది ఎండ్ అందరూ వంశమే నాశనమైపోయింది హోల్ ప్లాన్ వాస్ రూయిన్డ్ కనుకనే కామక్రోధ లోపము మూడు కులము భక్తికి చాలా పరమద్వేషులు దేర్ ఫోర్ the desire the anger greed or dead enemies to the path of devotion kanukane ee yokka daivatveshane nittu vaariki ee naatikaina kudumu ee vidhamaiki yokka patram tappadaku therefore those that hate god are bound to ruin themselves ee chetraithi upkaram cheyi the possible hell lekapothe oorukundu otherwise remain ante kaani deshinchadu never hate anybody adi help ever hurt never padjanandi pranam yokka saranni rendu vakyamtho bodinchadu the essence of 18 epics is contained in these two sentences Help ever hurt never. So that was a clip again from that same discourse in 1999, Ram Naomi. You know, the interesting thing was uh, what Swami was telling in the end where he said help ever hurt never because if you look at Ravana, as you said, one who has mastered not only so many forms of knowledge, but he has a lot of self-control too in so many ways because I think when we started the Ramakatha where we spoke about Ravana first time, we spoke about his penance where in that part of the Ramakatha Raswani Swami says that uh, he realizes that to become an emperor mm-hmm. after that incident where Dasharta sends the arrow and Correct. locks him up in his own kingdom, he realizes that the only way he can become an overlord and become an emperor is if he wins the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And that's when he goes and does tapas. And tapas is nothing but self-control. Mm-hmm. So he has gathered a good amount of self-control and as you said, he could even control his anger. He was not foolish enough to act based only on his anger. So he clearly is an example of somebody who has mastered so many things. But oftentimes as Swami says and as Swami said in this clip, see at the end of it, all your achievements should be based on these two values of help ever, hurt never. The moment you do anything for self-glorification, for selfish purpose, then you are building it on very, very shaky foundation. And I feel help ever, hurt never are not mutually exclusive. You can't help ever if you don't hurt never. You know, even if you hurt one person, you are not helping actually. So, if you look at Ravana, on one hand you spoke of how he did so much penance, so much good in fact, tapas, sadhana, to get glory. But on the other hand, what has he done? If our listeners will recollect, in the early episodes of Ramkata Rasavahini, we described how Ravana did penance that Dasharatha should not get any children from his loins. Not only that, he went a step further also. He thought, if he doesn't marry itself, why? So therefore, he kidnapped the daughter of the Kosala kingdom and threw her into the river. And we saw how she was found by Sumantra and brought and the marriage took place. Another thing that strikes when you look at all this is, you often meet your destiny on the path you take to avoid it. If we look not only at the life of Ravana, if we look at Hiranyakashipu's life, any of these demons who thought they could outwit the Lord, who thought they can outwit God and outthink God, they always met their doom. Because in building a safe locker for themselves, they built a coffin for themselves. That's what has happened, whether it's Hiranyakashipu, whether it's Ravana. Hiranyakashipu thought that the way uh, he has asked 
Brahma for immortality and he was refused. Therefore, he came up with so many conditions which he felt was nothing but immortality. And he thought he had fooled Brahma. But he got massacred by Lord Narsimha. In the same way, Ravana too, the way he placed his demands and the way he took care, he thought that he is invincible. But then came his downfall. God can't be won by intelligence. God can't be won by anything other than a heart filled with pure love. I think this also comes out very loudly as we go through the entire Ramayana story. That once you have set the ball rolling towards a bad destiny, whatever you do, you can't, you know, fool destiny or fool God. The next part is, of course, introduction of another interesting character. And uh, I think uh, I personally was again repeating the same thing which we have said in the past couple of weeks. Surprised at the pace at which the story goes right now, (laughs) given that so much of time (laughs) it took for uh, Rama to come to Panchavati. The very fact that it is happening so quickly and... uh, but before we go to that part of the story where Ravana takes the help of another ogre and starts plotting a means of getting away Sita and very clearly it is not to go and hit hard at Rama it was only to get away Sita at, at a moment where she would be unguarded but before we come to that dear listeners we'll take a short break we will play out a bhajan don't go away on the other side of it we will continue the story of Ramayana Oh, <laughs> 
Welcome back dear listeners. Let us join Ravana and go along with him to the seashore in Lanka because that is where the hermitage of Maricha is. If you remember Maricha was one among the demons whom Rama vanquished during the protection of the yagna by sage Vishwamitra. So at that time Maricha had tasted the glory and grandeur of Rama. He turns a new leaf. He gives up his rakshasa nature and begins to spend his time in contemplation with the Lord. Again all these characters when they are brought to fore it only highlights the importance of self effort you see tataki being vanquished you see shurpanaka being vanquished you see maricha being vanquished but different people take their vanquishing in different ways while one becomes revengeful and wants to annihilate god the other actually turns over a new leaf and maricha is a story of transformation and he has become a hermit that is how swami writes he has got a hermitage on the seashore in lanka because lanka is an island and ravana goes to him because of possibly two reasons though this is not in the ramkatha rasayana i just feel that maricha is possibly the only demon who has some experience of you know dealing with rama knows some information about rama and uh, Ravana apparently has great faith and trust in Maricha so he goes to Maricha and he says that you must help me i have a plan and Maricha when he comes to know of Ravana's plan to go and attack the place where the trio are he tries to dissuade him he says that Ravana give up this idea you have no idea they're not ordinary princes you just tell me in all these years how many people have tried to attack you and how many have been even partially successful look at the success of these two people doesn't that itself say that they're not ordinary people what they have accomplished two people having killed 14000 is not a joke it's not even to one person has killed and added to that ravana i am having my own personal experience i have witnessed his glory there that's why i have changed over a leaf like this so i it's absolute foolishness to attack you know ravana being a sane logical person would definitely have understood this advice but the problem comes because as we said ravana is not interested in actually killing these two brothers he is more interested in sita and that is the reason he even throws away the advice that maricha gives he is just not able to tell that maricha i am lusting for sita and i want to capture sita instead he says maricha if you don't listen to me i'm going to put you to death and maricha is now in a kind of situation between the devil and deep sea because if he accompanies ravana he sure to meet death if he doesn't accompany ravana also he's going to meet with death and uh, if you see this episode in the valmiki ramayana you know the plot which ravana comes with this he says that i will go and take away sita i mean he tells the thing that uh, when they are not around i'll go and take away sita when i bring sita away to lanka rama will be smitten he'll start pining for her and he will start becoming weak and that will be a good time for me to defeat him but uh, the moment this plot is given to maricha maricha realizes that you know ravana is trying to hide his lust in his planning he is really honestly speaking he is actually after mother sita but he is putting it in such a way that it is a stratagem by which he can weaken the enemy and uh, defeat him and uh, valmiki writes there that that's the moment maricha realizes that there's no point advising a person such as this exactly. a person who's in sound logic can be explained but one who is in anger one who is in in, right driven by lust you cannot give any logic to them that's when he says that there's no point in explaining this fellow and I, i might as well do what he's asking me to do because as swami also writes he says that maricha says that it is better to die at the hands of somebody as holy and great as rama than to die at the hands of rakshasa like ravana and that's why he finally agrees uh, ravana tells his plan he has got everything planned also he wants maricha to be the distraction or diversion to pull away rama and lakshmana and when both rama and lakshmana are not there he plans to kidnap sita now how do we take away rama and 
Lakshmana. So Ravana tells Maricha that the plan is that you become a golden deer. A golden deer so attractive and beautiful that Mother Sita will want to own you, want to have you. Again, you know, Ravana here underestimates. He considers Mother Sita to be any other ordinary woman who will get attracted by a deer. Anyway, he says that you do this because women have this weak point for uh, companionship and Sita is all alone in the forest and possibly having a pet deer, a cute, beautiful golden deer, maybe she will get attracted. You know, one is company and other is golden deer. It is said that the attraction that exists between woman and gold is something very, very powerful. So, that is the plan, he says. But again, as per this plan, only one of them, either Rama or Lakshmana is going to go behind catching the deer. They will not leave Sita alone and unguarded. And that's why Ravana says to Maricha, that once you draw them away, once you draw away, you know, he is assuming that most likely it will be Rama who will be following the deer. So he says, once you draw Rama far enough, you cry out, you cry out in Rama's voice as if you are in pain and as if you have been subdued so that Lakshmana will come to the rescue or the other brother, whoever is there will come to the rescue and basically Sita will be alone. At that point in time, I will kidnap Sita and get this the plan that he charts out and they start in the Pushpaka Vimana. So it is said that Ravana had an aerial chariot one of the earliest flights. That technology was also mastered by him and therefore Maricha and Ravana set out in the Pushpaka Vimana to go to where the trio are. In the meanwhile, you know, Lord Rama has sensed that the time has come for the central part of the mission, one of the important pillars of the mission to be accomplished. Exactly, because this is the time when uh, Rama, he calls Mother Sita and he says that we need to start planning because the time has come. So they call Lakshmana and send him away on uh, the task of bringing their day's fruits, you know, the lunch or whatever it is for the day he sent off. And then Rama starts discussing with Mother Sita saying that, you know, maybe today or tomorrow this might happen. The time for our separation, apparent separation has come. And then uh, Rama says that there is no way you and I can be separated. But for the world, we need to be separated because the purpose for which we have come, that time has come. And then there's a very beautiful description of Rama going back to his entry into the world and that of Mother Sita's entry into the world. And uh, he says that I have come from the fire. It was Lord Agni who comes out of that yagna, the fire of that uh, sacrifice and gives the paisam from which I was born. So I have my origin in fire and you have your origin from earth because she is excavated from a casket which is under the earth. In fact, Rama says that you too have your origin in fire because when the holy plough was being used to dig uh, up earth for building a yagnishala, it is from that earth that you have found. Right. Then he says that, you know, it it is a combination which is used for a sacrifice where you often see that with sand or with mud you have that uh, petum which is built and the fire is kindled inside that so he says as a combination we have like that uh, fire of sacrifice so now it is our time to start playing this drama make the sacrifice right make the sacrifice and play the drama for the world this is a very 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 special part because this is not there in any other Ramayana no other Ramayana describes this dialogue between Rama and Sita as if like they are aware I say as if because it is not there in other Ramayanas but Swami says that Rama knew what's going to happen Sita knew what's going to happen and this is when they plan they plan on doing a sacrifice you know again it shows why Swami says na karmana na prajaya dhane na tyage na ke amritatva manushu it's only by sacrifice that you achieve immortality. For achieving anything, you need a sacrifice. I think that is the inner meaning when we say that to obtain a son, Dasharatha had to do a sacrifice. And here Rama is speaking of a sacrifice that, that even God has to do in order to accomplish the goal of annihilating Ravana. 
and as you beautifully said you need the uh, yagna shala or the sacred pit in which the yagna is done which is built of earth and the fire both earth and fire are needed and in the same manner rama says sita you and me have to come together now and make a sacrifice and what is it that we are sacrificing we will be sacrificing our divinity from now on you and me will behave absolutely normal like any other human because it is only when we start behaving as human when we forget our innate divinity and when we keep aside our innate divinity and behave as human that we can get bound by the law of cause and effect and after getting bound by that law of cause and effect we can create a necessary cause to bring about the effect which is the downfall of ravana uh, beautiful in this discussion swami gives three points and uh, three reasons why this drama has to be played and in all those three points such profound messages are you know hidden i'll read out the first passage which is there in that where uh, the first point the first reason why rama says that we'll have to start behaving like humans he says in that remember that the smallest act of ours has to be an ideal for the householders of the world we have to hold forth models in the relationship between the husband and the wife they have to be quite in consonance with the principles of truth and righteousness our activities have to be in conformity with the guidelines laid down in the shastras we have to shape our lives in an exemplary manner so that common men can be inspired thereby and prompted to follow the ideals elaborated therein he says this is for the purpose so that people can look at us and say this is how men and women husband and wife is are supposed to lead their lives what should be the husband's reaction when he is separated from the wife what should be the wife's reaction when she is separated from the husband and when she is you know probably made a lucrative offer because ravana is somebody who is coming and saying that i'll make you the empress you know i am the one who has defeated so many people you can be my you know primary queen what is a woman's reaction what is a man's reaction what what are the efforts which need to be taken so he says that all this can be done if we only pretend to be humans and act completely as humans you know when we were discussing the satyam shyam sundaram swami's childhood life also this came up as to when any time swami is put as the ideal we always say that but come on he is god and so we spoke in great depth and great detail as to how swami kept away the so called godly nature and put on the vesture of human nature in order to show that see i have come with nothing i have asked for nothing and yet i have accomplished everything so that each one of us can take his life as his message and try to imbibe our lives also in a similar manner here also see till this point we have seen the all knowing nature of rama his divinity and therefore when rama is presented as the ideal by swami in his book one may say that come on after all rama is god so he does this so i feel even as a writer it's a master stroke from swami in revealing this truth you know rama tells sita that you also place that divine nature in the fire where it will be safeguarded by agni and i shall also do the same and from today onwards we are normal human and as we read the entire ramkatha rasavani we'll see that from this point on the way rama behaves the way rama is is no different from the rama before also which means we can't use the excuse that come on rama is divine so he did it even when rama chose to give up the divinity and live as a mortal even at that time he is the same ideal as he is when he has that divinity effulgently shining from him in the other point which uh, 
Rama makes, Lord Rama makes in this particular discussion is he says that it has to be shown to the world that uh, somebody like Ravana who has achieved not only you know great heights in scholarship but also in devotion you know because we always look up at Ravana and there's a description of Ravana as a great devotee of Lord Shiva hmm. so he says that this lesson has to be taught to the world that devotion which does not result in purity devotion which is which you can say that I am devoted but I can have these flaws I am devoted but I'll have my lust and my greed and anger intact this kind of an equation does not work and this is not acceptable this has to be shown to the world by making Ravana you know fall little lower and show that you know this is what will happen if your devotion does not lead to purity and this needs to be shown to the world that's one more point he makes and of course the other hidden secret which is told also he says that you know the story of Ravana that's what Rama says Sita you know the story of Ravana you know the curse which he is under and we also have to redeem him that was also one more purpose why we have to play this drama that's also a point which is said that previous point that Rama makes which you said I feel we need to spend some time and highlight that Rama says that see there can be no effect without a cause and we need a cause now the world has to realize that Ravana's dedication and devotion to God are not of the highest order because of what use is that sense of surrender if it is tarnished by the craving for sensual pleasure and immoral yearning. You know, Rama makes it very, very, very clear that how much ever you might seem to be advanced on the spiritual path, as long as it's tarnished by any of these six vices, anger, desire, greed, attachment, that whole thing is of no use. Your spiritual pursuit can bring you down in a moment just like it did to Ravana. You know, that is why I think we had this similar discussion before also where we realized that there are two kinds of people, you know, when we look around in the present day context, when we look around at people, those of us who profess to be devotees of Swami, we can clearly see, I mean, we need not point out people or we need not point out to others. We will realize that there are two kinds of people. One, who use the world so that they can achieve Swami. They whatever way possible, they will use the world so that they can achieve Swami. And there is the other category of people who will use Swami and Swami's name to achieve the world. So, as Maricha discovered what Ravana was doing, it was exactly the same. He was using some other pretexts in order to achieve worldly goals. What is important for us to decide now is what sort of people are we? Have we used all the blessings that we have got in the world? Possibly our wealth, possibly our fame, possibly our name, possibly our education, whatever. Whatever worldly things have we got, are we using that in order to achieve Swami? Or whatever little of Swami we have been able to absorb and imbibe and get, are we using that? Are we using Swami and Swami's name in order to achieve our worldly desires? I feel a part of both exists in all of us and I feel we should really make efforts to give up that part where we try to achieve worldly goals of name, fame, wealth, all this via Swami. And we should increase the proportion of achieving Swami via our worldly whatever wealth we have. Because these words which the way Swami has written it is so very strong and I think it's the most important part of this entire chapter because as devotees it's very very important for us because we think that one hour a week of bhajans or even coming and people like us settling in Puttaparthi that does not quantify devotion. That, qualify is not, us as right, devotees. that does not qualify as devotees because what Swami expects is 
In fact, in one of those paragraphs which Swami says here, it says, It is also imperative to announce for the benefit of mankind that any spiritual sadhana or asceticism or religious rite or ritual undertaken with the intention of gaining superhuman powers can be paltry and pernicious. Pernicious, huh? Yeah, pernicious. We have to hold forth Ravana as a warning to mankind that however many divine rites and acts one may do, if one does not give up one's demonic passions and impulses, they add up to only one result, rendering them unholy and sterile. Sterile means ineffective. Right. Absolutely so, no so use. very beautiful because Swami, I think a lot of us get into this mistaken notion of, you know, we do seva, we go out and do seva, we do bhajans and a whole night vigil and we do akhanda bhajan and all that. But unless that, that devotion percolates into our entire life and as Swami said, it expresses itself as help ever, hurt never. Because that is what Swami used to often say, you know, when Swami would give an entire discourse for one half hour. Swami would speak about Chitakasha, Bhutakasha and all that. Very, very subtle and deep philosophies. But at the end of the discourse, Swami will come to see good, be good, do good. Hmm. You know, sometimes you would feel that, you know, the first part of the discourse for, are for the intellectually advanced and the later half is for people like us, which is simpler. But in fact, it was actually a very, very obvious flow from that first half to the second half. Swami was saying that eventually, after all that, this should be the result in your day-to-day life. You have to be good, do good, and there should not be selfishness. There should not be a desire to benefit by harming others or by depriving others. And, uh, you know, Swami is saying that let's hold forth Ravana as an example to mankind. Exactly. So, because in every sense, Ravana is a great devotee. He had plucked out his intestines to play the veena for Lord Shiva. Lord Shiva says that Ravana is one of his favorite devotees because that is the amount of time he has invested in Lord Shiva. And Ravana had all the knowledge. He's a great devotee. And yet, you know, Rama says that when he adopts wrong means, is it wrong to marry a woman? Is it wrong to desire a woman to be your wife? No, but there are means to do it. So, it's not only about your ends. The means matter a lot. And if you are adopting wrong means... However noble be your end, it gets tainted by the ignobility or the meanness of the means. You can't have a glorious end based on an untruthful, bad or not so noble means. So, this is a very, very important flag for all of us who think we are on the spiritual path because we seem to have that kind of spiritual ego thinking that because we have done this or we have been so close to Swami or we have whatever physically or we have spent so many years in Prashantinliam, we are closer to God, our voice is closer to Swami's message or you know, all these kind of things. It is something that we have to be very, very alert and dear listeners, both Prem and myself are very aware of this danger that stares at us in our face and that is why we pray before every session and we pray even now from the bottom of our hearts that Swami, may this alertness forever be there and may we realize that we are actually nothing. It's all you, you and only you. And uh, just going back to this pattern where you know uh, Mother Sita is kidnapped and Ravana is uh, taken her away and Rama goes after her. I think this is a set pattern which comes in almost every important uh, story where it results either in the advent taking place or the the vanquishing of the uh, you know the, the evil one. It is almost like a pattern because if you look at it uh, in in the case of Hiranyakashipu, it was almost like the Lord sends one of his devotees to that very household and he says that no, you have done enough harm to be punished by me, but it is not enough. It's not really enough to warrant me to come and punish you. So he says, I am sending my devotee to you. You trouble him or her 
and now you all the more requ- required to be punished. <laughs> it's almost like that. That's the case with Prahala. That's the same thing which happens here. Mother Sita is sent. Uh, Kamsha, that's the same thing which happens because there is that interesting thing in Bhagutam where Kamsha says that after all, it's the eighth child which is going to kill me. Why should I trouble the first seven? So he kind of allows them to live. And uh, Narada. Narada comes and plays the trick and he says that, you know, unless you trouble the devotee, the Lord will not come to punish you. So kind of incites him and kind of puts a wrong thought in his head and he eventually goes and kills those seven children and that's how he troubles Devaki and Vasudeva and he kind of warrants the advent of Krishna to come and vanquish him. It's almost like that and this again is probably a lesson for us because how many of us feel that we have stuck in the wrong place? You know, I am loving Swami, I am doing the right things, I am trying my best to follow whatever Swami teaches us but I am in a place of evil and everybody around me is you know, cunning and they do the wrong things. Mm. Maybe it is it is a plot like this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> your piety is being uh, used by Swami to crystallize the, <laughs> the sense of people around you. you know, probably it could be. There's one more important point Rama makes to Sita. He says, Sita, you have to perform your part in the destruction of the Rakshasas. And right. he says that, exactly. you, so you be ready to play this role. And yeah, as you were saying, be ready to play this role. And he says that, you know, though I am from the fire and you are from the earth, you have the power of fire imminent in you. And again, I don't know if this statement is there in the Valmiki Ramayana or the other Ramayanas, but Rama says that the fire that is in you is the one that has to burn Lanka. And if we look, it is not only a metaphorical statement because literally this is what happens. A fire burns Lanka and it is because of the spark that emanates from Sita, you know. Again, there another devotee that is the Lord Hanuman who is seated here. He does that. That will be a beautiful condom. Uh, we will come to that later. Anyway, the thing is, he says, Sita, you have that fire, that fire which has to burn Lanka because your nature is fire. Because from this day on, Sita, become an illusory Sita. A Sita who has been trapped, apparently trapped by illusion, who has forgotten her divine nature. And the true Sita, let it be in the fire. And I will accept you from the fire once the mission is complete. And uh, this explanation actually solves a lot of doubts and clears a lot of nagging questions that might arise towards the end. Because at this point in time, the true Sita goes into the fire and an illusory Sita, a Sita that is necessary for the completion of the mission of Lord Rama comes in her place. Rama too decides to suspend any exhibition of his divinity and becomes like an ordinary mortal. And it is in this time when all this happens, totally blissfully ignorant of all this, Lakshmana walks in with the fruit and some water from the river. It is time for their lunch and they sit there having their lunch in the sylvan settings of the jungle, enjoying conversation with each other. And uh, it's also important what point which Swami is making here about the Mahasita. As you said, one thing is later an episode which comes kind of explains why this had to happen. But the other thing is, uh, I think one of the stories, Upakathas in Mahabharat is Nalada Menti, hmm. where one of the hunters tries to molest her in the forest. He gets burnt the moment he touches her. And there actually it is given the description of a Sati is like that. One hmm. who is a Pativrata. She cannot be even touched. The moment you come and touch her, you'll be burnt to ashes. So given the purity of Sita, actually speaking, Ravana should have been burnt to ashes the moment he even came and touched her. But as Rama is very clearly saying that, you know, you have to go to Lanka and the entire Lanka has to be burnt. (laughs) You know, that cannot happen here. If we finish only Ravana, it is not good enough. And of course, when we go to the next part, the Sundra Kandam is there. The number of people who get the opportunity to play a role in this entire drama. I think the redemption is for all of them. It is 
not only Ravana being killed or Kumbhakarna being killed or even Indrajit being killed. It is the redemption for all those small people who play that role in that drama including the entire army of the monkeys and it is for this that is why when we I think many many times in our satsang we have said the avatar comes not only for killing the evil you know the opportunity to give joy to those who are devoted to him is the more important than the vanquishing part of an avatar's descent. You know before concluding the satsang I would just like to add one point to what you said about you will be burnt. I feel that when they say that Pativrata or a Sati, if she is touched, you are burnt. I think that's in a metaphorical sense. It just means that when purity, when you act against purity, your destruction is assured. And how that destruction comes about, again, another statement that Swami often makes in his discourses. In the Ramakatha also, he says, he uses it, I'm forgetting exactly where, but that statement is, Vinashakale Viparita Buddhi. It just means that when the time of destruction is imminent, all sorts of crazy and, you know, uh, illogical ideas seem to be striking the head. That is what has happened to Ravana. Because his end is imminent, he is getting all these wrong ideas and ideas which are sure to bring about his downfall where he decides to pit himself, pit all his lust against the purity of mother goddess herself. And uh, this is what is being planned even as the trio are having their food in the hut. Ravana and Maricha are just outside a little distance from this place plotting how the next step should come about and how Ravana will be kidnapping her. But I think possibly that we could reserve for our next fortnight of the Ramkatara Savahini. So dear listeners, with that we come to the end of this week's afternoon satsang. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. We would be very glad to hear from you what you think about this series and the other programs in Radio Sai of course. As always you can write to listener at radiosai.org. This is Prem from Team Radio Sai with Arvind offering with humility this effort of ours at Swami's Lotus Feet. Thank you. Happy listening.
Sai Ram. You just heard an episode of our radio program, Afternoon Satsang. This was a segment of Radio Sai's Thursday Live, hosted by Prem and Arvind at 12.30 p.m. Indian Standard Time on Thursdays, only on Asia stream of Radio Sai Global Harmony. The discussion was on the Ramakatha Rasavahini, a book written by Swami, and today's episode was first broadcast live on 23rd July 2015. Dear listeners, we hope you like this program. As always, send us your feedback to listener at radiosai.org. Thank you and loving Sai Ram from Prashanthi Nilayam.